Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. In these extraordinary times, we're coming to you from our various homes as we all shelter in place. This season on SageCast, we're talking to Pomona faculty and alumni about the personal, professional, and intellectual journeys that have brought them to where they are today. This episode was recorded on April 3rd, 2020, in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. As we release this episode, many cities across the U.S. are grappling with issues of racial injustice, exacerbated by the death of George Floyd. Today, we're talking with Andrew Glazier, class of 97, the national president and CEO of The Five Ventures, a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people in or just out of prison prepare for successful lives on the outside. Welcome, Andrew. It's good to have you with us. Um, you've said that during your your early years, the the L.A. riots in 1992 were a, a seminal moment in your life. How old were you, and why was that so important? Yeah, so I was just about 16. So I was a junior in uh, high school. I'm pretty sure, um, and. Uh, uh, you know, I think up until that moment, um, you know, LA is one of these cities where you, you can spend your whole life, uh, you know, really in a bubble. And I think for me, that was uh, no exception. I went to a private school. Uh, I grew up in the San Fernando Valley. Um, you know, uh, other than, uh, occasionally heading out for, you know, um, music lessons in, in downtown LA, you know, I, I really had no, no reason to be there. Um, so it was, it was very possible to grow up in this bubble where there was this sort of other, you know, other group, other group of people, other, you know, other part of the city that I didn't know about and never went to and, and really felt like it had nothing to do with me. Uh, and the, uh, you know, the, the riots happened and all of a sudden, um, you know, the, there was this moment of, uh, you know, this is my city. This is where I live. This is happening here. And, you know, I, I can't just pretend like, uh, you know, I have my life and that's somebody else's life. And, um, I, you know, I don't, I don't think I knew it at the time, but I think, you know, processing the, you know, my experience of that, of the riots um, over the course of the next few years really, um, kind of drove home for me this, you know, larger community that I was living in and that there were real, you know, injustices and disparities in the world. And, um, you know, all was not, uh, you know, what it seemed, you know, in the halls of my, my private school. Andrew, tell us about your Pomona years. How did they help shape your life? Uh, yeah. You forward? Know, yeah. They, so, so Pomona was, you know, uh, some of the best years of my life. You know, I, I really, really enjoyed my time there. It was, um, uh, for me, you know, it was the first time I think in my life that I arrived in a place where I felt like I was among my people. Um, uh, so, you know, it, it was, uh, it was really a, a, a great place for me to learn and grow and build relationships. Um, you know, uh, it's also where I, you know, continue to explore my own, um, uh, my own hopes and dreams for what I wanted to be and, um, and, you know, to, to be able to kind of try out new stuff, you know, uh, 
I think um, I had done, you know, photography in high school for the yearbook and initially came out of Pomona doing photography for the newspaper and then um, transitioned to become a writer. And, uh, you know, that was, um, that was a great experience to actually start reporting on things. And, and then I um, gave myself a column in my senior year because you can do that. Um, <laughs> also, my roommate was the editor-in-chief. So oh, that uh, helps. Well yeah, connected. Helped. So it's like, hey, ha- how about a column? And he's like, okay, how about a column? <laughs> so, what did uh, you write about? Uh, well, so uh, my column was called um, The Answer Man, and I would make up questions to a- ask myself and answer. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> Dear Andrew. Yes. <laughs> so, so, you know, it was more of a, along the lines of, um, I'm, I'm glad you asked that, even though nobody <laughs> asked me that. Um, it was, uh, I think... Um, I mean, I had a lot of fun with it. Uh, I'm, I'm sure it was a little bit obnoxious, um, but uh, I feel like that's kind of college. So, um, uh, so, so, so doing all those things, I think it just, you know, you, you, I started to experience different ways of being active. Um, and, uh, you know, whether it was, you know, it was my, I got to kind of come up with my own brand of what I felt that was like to be an advocate for something or um, whether that was writing behind the scenes about something or, having opinions about things but um i it was all part of the experience and um you know i think uh you know pomona also offered um uh it was it was it was a more diverse environment than i had been in before that um and so you know i'm not sure how pomona rated on a diversity scale in in the mid 90s but certainly for me, um, it was more diverse than where I come from. Um, and, uh, you know, there was a lot of diversity of thought and opinion and, um, that was great. Uh, I think early on, you said that you had plans after Pomona at some point to run for office. Um, are those plans on hold or have you left them behind? Yeah. So I think, you know, I had a lot of ambition coming out of, um, of Pomona. I think when I graduated, I was uh, determined to run for the uh, mayorality of, of Los Angeles. Um, and, uh, you know, was already plotting my ascent to, uh, to, to that, uh, that post. But, um, I, you know, coming out of school, I, well, first I, I taught English in Japan as a, as a, on the JET program, and then came back and had my five-year plans kind of laid out. Um, and, uh, you know, part of that was I went and worked in, um, for an elected official. Uh, I worked for a few, actually. One for the state, the state controller, and then for a school board member, um, which was a great experience. And I have to say, working in government, to me, is something I think everyone should do. Because it gives you this window into our democracy. Um, that, you know, I think it can be very hard to appreciate how government happens, <laughs> right? Um, when, you, when you're sort of sitting, uh, you know, as an observer of that or, or experiencing it or on the receiving end of that. But um, being in the middle of it, um, it just, it was a great experience. It also slowly but surely cured me of the desire to be an elected official. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think it, uh, 
you, you really have to want to do it. And you want to have to do it for the right reasons, I think. You know, there's a lot of people in politics who run for office and um, it may start in the right place, but then slowly kind of moves into this kind of desire for power and influence. And, um, and, and those, are the, those can be some of the, the corrupting aspects of government. Um, but, you know, for me, uh, I think in the end, I just realized that wasn't going to be my path. Um, and, uh, and that's fine. So, um, you know, unless, uh, unless I'm appointed uh, U.S. Senator uh, by some governor in the future, I, I don't see elected office in my future. Yeah, so, so what was your path? What, what yeah. path did you choose? So, so having been in government about five years, I think one of the things I realized was that I had a, a great grounding uh, in the liberal arts, um, courtesy of Pomona, critical thinking, good writing, um, but that I was missing some of the uh, some of the harder skills um, that I felt like would would have would make me better at whatever it is I was going to do. And so, uh, specifically, I remember um, we were we were at the time I was working at the Unified School District. We were reviewing a lot of um, we had a big giant bond program. It's one of the largest bond programs in the country at the time. And I remember these these guys would come in from the business consultants, and they would sort of lay out these these timelines and you know, all these financials and I would be looking at budgets and I just was totally lost. And I was like, I, this is something I need to understand better. And so that plus a desire to make millions in real estate took me to business school. So, um, I went in to get my MBA at, uh, at the UCLA Anderson school, um, really with the goal of, of becoming a real estate developer. Um, and, uh, you know, that was, that was very interesting too. And, uh, you know, it was, I don't know that I enjoyed it all that much. Um, but, uh, but I certainly learned some good stuff. And one thing I did not learn was how to manage. I did learn though a lot about, um, finance and strategy and, um, operations and, and, you know, some, some useful stuff, but, but mostly it teaches you a different way of thinking about risk and return. Um, mm -hmm. and that has served me really well in everything that I've done. But um, I, I uh, fi finished business school uh, in 06 and then did go into real estate development for a few years. And for those of you who uh, may, may remember, 06 to 08 was, had some echoes of today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, from, from an economic standpoint, uh, you know, I, I joined as the, uh, as the markets were just, you know, hitting their peak and then, um, headed into the toilet. So, um, but in the interim, you know, I was in a little real estate development company, a little entrepreneurial firm. And, you know, I started originally ostensibly to do finance and was spreadsheeting and creating models. And, and then there wasn't really anything to buy or sell. So then there was a project. So I ended up as a general contractor. Um, so the, the guys at the firm were like, Hey, listen, you seem kind of handy. Why don't you run the construction site? It was their first project too. They didn't know the right end of a hammer. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I did, I had some construction in my blood. I was like, okay, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll give that a shot. Little did I know that that meant I was going to spend the next, um, the next 18 months running a construction site. Um, and so I taught myself general contracting on the fly there and, um, uh, it, was, it was stressful. It was a challenging project. Um, but that's where I learned to manage. Um, 
because uh, you know you have all these different crews coming on from it's I mean from all these different places, um, uh, you know, um, and you had to manage to uh, a goal, and um, that was great practice. Uh, and you know you're managing to to a timeline, to a budget, and to a quality standard. And as I learned in construction, you can have two of those three things, um, but not all three. So um, we we uh, we came in uh, on time and over budget, but with good quality. So those those are the two that we picked, um, or that I picked. Um, but along the way, you know, you, I really learned a lot about just managing and managing people, and also it was. Um, uh, you know, one of my favorite parts was walking around and just talking to the various crews and learning about them. And, you know, I had a concrete crew that was, they were all from the same small town in Oaxaca. And I had a framing crew that was, you know, all from the same town in Guatemala. <laughs> and, you know, I had an electric crew that was from Vietnam. And, um, and so, you know, there was, I just, it was great to walk around and meet people and talk to people. Um, and then I also met people who were, formerly incarcerated. And um, that was, you know, in talking to them, you know, I remember this one guy and he was on, he was on, uh, he was on one of my framing crews and he was like, yeah, you know, when I was uh, a meth addict and, uh, you know, was, you know, robbing a store and uh, ran from a cop and stole his gun and then I got shot. <laughs> and then I went to prison for a couple of years. And now here I am doing this. And he's like, and I'm thankful for this. But um, you know, he was you know, hearing him talk about his his life and kind of how he got there. Um, you know, he also made the point of like, listen, there just aren't a lot of options. You know, this is what was open to me. I didn't wake up when I was, you know, 10 years old and say to myself, you know, I want to be a framer, but that's what I'm doing and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm happy to be doing it. Um, but, uh, you know, but that's how I got here. Right. And that was the first time in my life that I had talked to somebody that I knew had a criminal history, right. And heard their story and, um, had a, just a human interaction and, you know, he was a super nice guy and, um, he was doing his thing. And, um, and I met a few other people there who also had criminal histories. And that's really where I realized, look, re-entry is really hard coming out of prison, particularly if you're coming out with a violent felony, your options are really limited. And this was in the mid two thousands when, you know, the conversation at that point was still just coming off of, uh, you know, how to keep people away for longer. Right. I mean, if you think about, you know, criminal justice as a, as a movement, right. In the late nineties, all anybody want to talk about was super predators and giving people more time. Right. How do you keep yeah. people in jail for longer? <laughs> right. Yeah. With three strikes and, and minimum right. sentencing and mandatory sentencing. And um, so, you know, at that point, you know, it was there wasn't a lot going on, um, but that stuck with me. So so I left um, I left construction in 08 because the market really had fallen apart. There was nothing to do. Um, I spent about eight months um of introspection, also known as unemployment, um, while I was uh, trying to think through my next move. Mm -hmm. um, did some, I was underemployed, did some kind of odd jobs here and there. And um, and then, uh, you know, my wife finally said I had to get a job. So I ended up taking a job um, with uh, a nonprofit called City Year. And it was an education-based nonprofit. And for me at that point, it was, it really felt like a step backwards to me. 
because I had gone to business school to be in the private sector, to like, you know, not be in government, not go back to education. Um, and yet here I was, and, you know, it felt like, you know, when the economy was bad, all anybody looked for on your resume was what they were definitely sure you could do. <laughs> right? right. And, you know, what my resume said I could definitely do was, you know, work with government and work in education. And so, you know, city year came along and I, I knew the, the, the leader of the LA site. She said, well, we need some help with the school district. And at first I was like, I don't want to do that. But then, you know, my wife was like, you should go do that. So um, I took that job and it was for a, a six month contract um, to really help them sort out their um, work with LA Unified. It was an education-based nonprofit doing a lot of work in schools. And, you know, one of the things you quickly realize when you do have government experience is that government is a black box to people. And that, um, you know, it, it's this sort of mysterious it's this mysterious thing that people don't understand. And so if you do understand it, you, you can really, you can help pretty easily. And so when I talked to them, they said, oh, we need this, this, and this. And I said, listen, that's not what you need. I know what you need and I can do it for you. So I'll do it for six months. So I came in, I did it for six months, did a good job. They were happy and they're like, well, why don't you stay? It's like, yeah, but I don't want to just keep doing that. So then they made me a Something else. Oh, then I became uh, a chief of staff, right? And it was, and so then I started, got into the program. And then six months later, then I was, or a year later, I was running the whole program. Um, and so I ended up six months turned into eight years. And I stayed there for almost eight years. And, um, uh, you know, and what that taught me is something that I think actually is starting to become relevant now to a lot of people. I think it's always relevant, particularly relevant now, which is, look, when you're, when you're looking around and trying to figure out what you, what to do, you know, I had to be open to what the universe offered to me at that time. And, you know, I took me a little while to realize like, this is what the universe is offering to me right now. So, all right, let's, let's see what happens. And it was the beginning of, of kind of an accidental series of career moves for me that eventually brought me to defy. Um, so eight years there, um, you know, really immersed in public education and, and all that goes along with that, but also seeing this school to prison pipeline and, um, you know, how, uh, you know, generational poverty and violence and racism and inequity really is part of this pathway um, that, that kids who grow up, you know, in the inner city, you know, for, for a lot of them, you know, when, when you, you know, the, if your grandmother was in the gang and your father's in the gang, you know, it's the path of least resistance in a lot yeah. of cases. And, um, uh, you know, absence of intervention, absent opportunity, right? Yeah. You know, uh, you, you, we would, you know, you just see it. And, you know, at City Year, we would try all these interventions and, you know, we were successful a lot of times, but then there were the kids who we weren't successful with. And um, so, you know, Eventually, I made the decision to leave City Year, and that was really uh, more about having just felt like I had done what I was there to do, and my work was done there, and I was looking for a new challenge. Um, so, so, so I left, and I gave them six months notice. Said, "Hey, listen, I'm I'm ready to do something different. You know, I wanted to also have a shot at, at being my, you know, being in charge of something, being the number one. I'd been the number two there for a long time, and I was good at that, but I wanted to try something." new. So I left and didn't know where I was going to go. And, um, you know, uh, 
you know, I was lucky enough to be able to leave without another job lined up. And, um, you know, th uh, three months later, Defy Ventures came calling and, you know, I got put in touch with them through a mutual contact and they said, well, you know, what do you think? And I took a look and said, okay, yeah, I'll give this a shot. You know, this certainly rings true for me as uh, an interesting extension of the work I was doing at City Year is sort of a, a, a new spot in that cycle, right? Um, mm -hmm. And uh, and also thinking back to my experience on that construction site all those years ago, uh, and it, you know, it felt like the right thing. Um, so I took the job uh, as the executive director for Southern California uh, for Defy Ventures, which at that point was a, a new chapter. Um, and then things kind of took off from there. So what, what, what did Defy do? What was the kind of work that Defy did? And what did Defy look like at that point? And walk us through um, the how you became president of Defy under some difficult conditions. Yeah, yeah. So so Defy um, is... Uh, it's an entrepreneurship program, um, but re really what Defy is about is giving people with criminal histories their best shot at a second chance. Um, and we use entrepreneurship um, as a lever there to increase economic opportunity uh, and, and to change mindsets. Because um, it turns out that entrepreneurship is a very, very powerful context for mindset change. I've never met anybody who was a, a successful entrepreneur who didn't believe they could do something, right? If, you, you can't be an entrepreneur if you don't believe you have something to offer the world, right? That you don't believe that you um, have, uh, you know, uh, gifts, right? Gifts to give uh, or something to sell, right? And, and that's what we call a growth mindset. Or sorry, so what we call an asset-based mindset. Growth mindset is important too. But so the asset-based mindset is the really important piece of this year because you have to believe in yourself right? you have to believe you can do something and so we use entrepreneurship as this way to transform a liability-based mindset to an asset-based mindset so that's what the program fundamentally does so entrepreneurship sits at the center of it but really 75 percent of the of the curriculum is personal development and career readiness but you can pull people in with this idea of entre entrepreneurship um so uh so defy works in prisons and also in the post-release space. So we work with people while they're still incarcerated and then after they come out, using entrepreneurship as a center, but really with the goal of changing the mindset to get them um, uh, to, to, to better prepare them for re-entry. Uh, so that when they leave prison, they come into society, they're in a mindset that will allow them to be successful. Whether they choose to start their own business or not is not really important. Um, it, but it, but what we what we see and what we know is that if you have that asset based mindset, you're going to have a far better shot at getting a job. Uh, if you can talk about your past, and you can and you have optimism and goals for your future, um, so that's what we do. Um, so when I came in to uh, to Defy, we were um, still about a seven year old organization in five states, uh, Southern California was really new, operating I think in three or four prisons at that point. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the local chapter was kind of a mess. It was, you know, the, the organization was run by people who were, you know, they were entrepreneurs themselves, didn't really have a lot of experience in nonprofit management. Um, I, you know, we're kind of learning things on the fly. I made a lot of mistakes and, um, so, you know, I had 
I had an experience set there that was useful because I had come from a very large, well-established nonprofit and I knew what it was supposed to look like. So I was able to kind of organize the Southern California chapter. And then after five months, the, the CEO and founder said to me, well, why don't you move into the chief program officer role and help us, you know, organize the rest of the chapters in the country on the national level. So I did that. And then, um, uh, and then a few months after that, uh, um, we had a massive scandal involving the founder and CEO, um, you know, driven by a disgruntled employee um, who, you know, shared a lot of confidential information out in the world and also made a lot of stuff up, but um, it didn't really matter. In, in the end, there was enough there that was true um, that the, uh, the founder had to resign and um you know that plus uh some some pretty nasty press um you know led to um well me getting a battlefield promotion to become president and ceo um but also uh also you know a complete uh seizing up of our funding pipeline so uh, here I was with a sudden promotion to be CEO. So you know, remember, I'd, I'd taken the, I'd left City here with the goal of becoming, you know, a number one somewhere. Little did I know I was going to get what I was asking for. Mission uh, accomplished. Right, yes. in, in this way. Um, <laughs> but, but uh, you know, be careful what you wish for. So there I was, um, you know, in charge of this organization that, you know, uh, was eff- effectively a ship on fire. Right or a dumpster fire, right? You know, yeah. <laughs> in this case, um, and uh, and terrified, right? Because like this was like this was not <laughs> what I planned for, not what my experience said. I felt I prepared me for. Um, and it's not something you want to put on your resume. Oversaw the the, the final decline of an institution, that, right? That, that's right, exactly. <laughs> um, uh, yes, uh, r- road organization into. The- <laughs> Um, so, so, uh, so there I was, um, you know, doing the best I could without much, um, without a lot of guidance and, um, you know, again, finding myself teaching myself how to do something uh, along the way. And, um, you know, the, the end result was, uh, I became president and initially interim CEO, uh, at the, uh, just about actually almost two years exactly from now earlier uh, ago and then a month later you know or a few weeks later suddenly realized I should be asking how much money we had and then um and then found out we had no money (laughs) um you know the result of that was I unfortunately I had to I had to lay off uh you know two-thirds of the staff uh nationally over a video call which was really one of the worst days of my professional life um and um, and then I had to figure out how to rebuild this thing. Um, so how do you go I, about rebuilding something like that? I, I mean, that kind of downward momentum is really hard to turn, isn't it? It is nearly impossible, you know. And and effectively, we flatlined. So we hit a day in May. Um, I think it was May fifth of twenty eighteen when I laid everybody off and just said, "Hey, we're closing." And um, so then the board came to me and they said, listen, if you'll try to give it a go, we'll give you, you know, 
a quarter of a million dollars to try to figure it out. And so they, they, you know, dug into their pockets, came up with a quarter million dollars. And then, you know, I was able to kind of restart the organization with five people. And, um, from how many had, how many had there been before? 60. 60 yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So we, we were a year prior, a $7.1 million budget, mm-hmm. with roughly 60 people. And yeah. now we were five, six people. And then I started making calls and begging people to, you know, help us. And, you know, I found that there were a few people out there who felt this was too important not to do. Mm-hmm. And, um, that the work that we did was was good uh, and that it shouldn't die. And so little by little, I was able to cobble together, you know, first somebody came through with a hundred thousand and then somebody came through with 20 and then 40. And then I had lots of people with, you know, 500 bucks, thousand dollars. And slowly but surely we kind of were able to turn the lights back on. Um, but I also had to create a new business model and um, you know, essentially create a business model on the back of a napkin and, um, you know, that was, you know, evolved over the course of the next year, but involved sort of franchising the, the, the program out. Um, and, you know, and, and then just, you know, you know, had to settle people, you know, had to settle threatened lawsuits and, um, you know, and, and then deal with a lot of anger and emotion out there from people, whether it was, you know, former employees or, you know, former donors. Um, it just was a lot of work. And, you know, it, it, within all that, I also had to figure out why I was there. And that was the hardest thing, because I think there was there were a number of months there where I just every day I would go to work and feel stuck. You know, and I feel like I was like, I had no choice but to be there. And because if I didn't do it, then, you know, it was on me. And if it failed, you know, then, you know, I was letting all these people down. But it was awful, right? I hated every day. Yeah. I went to work because it just <laughs> felt like I was there because I had no choice. And then I met this guy who um, was a, uh, an executive coach. And, uh, you know, I was still, we were still running these prison trips because our goal was just to try to finish the programs that we had started so that we weren't going to let these, these men and women down who were inside prison. So the goal was just finish them out and then close up, right? Um, mm-hmm. And then I met this guy. He was in, met him in prison. <laughs> um, never gets old to say that. But, um, <laughs> and, uh, and he said, you know what? Uh, you know, I'm an executive coach and I'm going to coach you. And first I was like, you know, if I had a dollar for everybody who offered to coach me right now, I could, you know, fund my organization. But um, he's like, no, no, we're, we're going to do this. And, you know, the first time I got on the phone with him, he said, listen, why are you here? I said, well, you know, I, this is I this moral obligation. I feel like it's this ethical obligation to do this. And there's all these people. He's like, no, no, why, though? Why are you here? He's like, well, I also hate losing. He's <laughs> like, that, that part I believe. And, um, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and he's like, listen. Um, you can quit anytime you want to, right? Nobody's making you do this. Um, but you know, you have to find a reason to show up. And you also like the other piece of this is if you stand up in front of people and you say, Hey, listen, help me die. (laughs) Give me money so I can die. (laughs) 
<laughs> as an organization, right? That is not inspiring at all to anybody. Nobody wants to fund that. Oh, it inspires right? me. Right? So he's yeah, like, no, look, no. you got to lead with optimism and gratitude and confidence. Yeah. And mm-hmm. you got to believe that there's something that you can do. It's like, okay, yeah, mm-hmm. you're right. And the other thing he said to me, you know, I, I said, back, I said, well, but I'm not sure. Right. But what if it doesn't work? Right. Then, then I've lied to all these people. It's like, no, listen, your integrity, that's not your problem here. Right. I mean, the prior leadership in the organization that had might've been a problem. That was not my problem. It's like, look, nobody, nobody thinks you're trying to sell them bill of goods. All you have to do is have a plan that's legitimate. Right. You're not taking the money and going to Hawaii. Right. You have a legitimate plan and you have a legitimate path to get there. As long as you have that, your integrity is intact. If it fails, it fails. But but everybody knows or should know, right, that things go wrong. Right. And and um, you can try as hard as you can, but sometimes it doesn't work out. So you should just assume that people know that. Right. And you don't need to you don't need to tell them that. They know what you need to say is here's what I'm trying to do. And here's what I think I can get there and why I think I'm the guy to do this. And then people will support you. And so a flip switched for me in that moment where I was able to say to myself, you know what? I'm here because I want to be here. I have agency. Right. And, um, and I used to give this piece of advice to um, the AmeriCorps members at city Year when I was there and I had 300 AmeriCorps members working for me. And I would say to them, one, you're doing city year, it's not being done to you. And two, if it doesn't hurt, you're not growing. So I had to eat my own words at that point uh, <laughs> and tell myself, you know what? I am doing this job, it's not being done to me. And if it doesn't hurt, I'm not growing. And, um, and I'm here because I wanna be here. And if it doesn't work out, I'm not a bad person. Yeah. Right? And, and that completely changed the way that I thought about work and and told my entire mindset about doing the job. Um, and, I, you know, and these days, I'm going to say it's about 80-20. You know, 80% of the time, I think I can do it. And 20% of the time, you know, I feel like it's never going to work, right? Those are pretty good odds. I think, yeah. you know, in the last three weeks, maybe the, those odds have changed a little bit. But, um, but, uh, but certainly, look, I mean, it... it, it, it Getting in the, the mindset, right? Transform my own mindset into this place of like, this is something that I can do. And we have assets here and, and we're doing something important and good. That was as much of the success of turning around the organization as anything. Yeah. Uh, talk to us now about what what Defy Ventures actually does. Um, yeah. How do you choose your participants and and how does it work? Yeah. So, um, so we will... Uh, we, we work in um, mostly in moderate and maximum security prisons. Um, there's a few minimum security. We work with men and women, and we're, we work with uh, young adults down to age 18. Um, we'll accept anybody into the program who fills out the application and says that they want to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, we have, a, we have a, um, a recruitment meeting in prison where one of us goes in, uh, often me, sometimes others, and we kind of go through the program and we talk about what it is. We make sure they understand, like, look, there's a lot of self-work going into this. Um, yes, entrepreneurship is in it. Yes, you're going to learn about starting your own business. But here's the thing. You're also going to learn a lot about yourself. And you're going to spend a lot of time working on yourself. Um, and uh, it's about a seven-month program. It's not easy. It's about 1,200 pages of curriculum. 
10 to 15 hours of work per week. They meet between one and three times a week in, in a group. Um, and then we bring volunteers in as coaches and mentors um, halfway through and at the very end. And so at that midpoint, we bring in a group of anywhere from 20 to 50 volunteers who come in as coaches and they coach them around their resumes and their personal statements and their business plan. And then at the very end, we bring in volunteers for a business pitch competition in prison. It's kind of Shark Tank style where we do kind of, we do rounds of pitches and then we pick five winners at the end uh, and the winners get between one and $500 depending on what, how they place first through fifth place. And they can get that money as an IOU uh, when they release. Um, mm-hmm. But the curriculum, it's, it's about, it's about, 25% like true hard entrepreneurship, like costs and revenues and, you know, marketing and things like that. And the rest of it is, you know, um, that personal development, right? Coming to terms with your past, making a meaningful apology, setting goals, writing your own obituary, um, uh, you know, heavy stuff, fairly mm-hmm. heavy stuff. And then there's the, edi- there's the career stuff, resume, personal statement, um, business etiquette, uh, you know, networking, um, some introductions to ideas of technology, if not actual technology, because you can't have a computer in there. Um, but so that's how the program works. So it's about eight months long, seven to eight months long. And then after they graduate, then they, when they, when they release, and some of them will release, you know, and most of them are going to release within the next five years. Some of them are going to release much later than that. And some of them may never release. Um, those that may never release or those with longer sentences, um, many of them will become our peer facilitators. So they actually then come back as TAs for the class and they actually help run the class. Um, So there's a peer support that gets built in there, which is a big Uh part of our success. When people release, we're there for them with this post-release program. So we have someone on the outside who is uh, often formerly incarcerated, not always, um, who will do an intake with them. We give them a Chromebook and then we start to do some workshops with them, and uh, and we're working to build employer partnerships to be able to connect people in uh, to jobs. And really, our primary outcome when people come out is that they get employed. Mm-hmm. And then the next outcome is do they go back to prison, which is a recidivism rate. Um, and then the the secondary outcome is really that's what the outcome of do they start a business. In my view, if we have you know three percent of these people coming out. Of our, of our entrepreneurs and trainer, EITs as we call them. 3% of our EITs coming out, start businesses, and the rest of them have jobs uh, that are meaningful to them and they're able to stay out of prison. Like we, we hit a home run there, um, yeah. right? So, um, so, you know, that's really what we're working towards. Um, and, you know, when they're outside, we also try to bring in the volunteer component again and help build community, uh, you know, that feels like an accepting non-judgmental community for people when they're out. So they really have, you know, places where they feel supported. Yeah. Andrew, um, obviously the epidemic we're all living is affecting everybody, but tell us how is that affecting your work? Yeah, I, it's, um, I mean, the, the biggest thing is the prisons are closed, right? We can't do our work in prisons right now the way that we're used to doing it, right? And also our work is built around building community, right? Whether it's building community inside or bringing volunteers and be part of that community or building community outside. So, you know, we have to find a way to build community now when we can't get together. Right. And, yeah. um, that's really challenging. Um, 
but you know, we are also, if nothing is not adaptable here at Defy. So, um, <laughs> you know, I think uh, for the prison work, we're trying to think of any possible way that we can reach in. Um, and so right now we're working on trying to um, send books in with like a book club where they can continue to read a book and then give them a study guide to, you know, even if they're getting together in groups of two or three inside, they could talk about this book. Um, or if we have peer facilitators inside, they may be able to continue to run the class. So we, we can send the, the textbooks in. Um, we're trying to get letters in from our volunteers so, so that, you know, people inside know that there are still people in the world that care about them. And that is a big piece of, of what, frankly, helps people transform is this realization that A, they're not alone, and B, that they are, that somebody cares about them, right? Uh, and that feeling of not being alone, of, of care, I've seen it happen over and over again for somebody who walks in the door feeling angry and detached and um, you know not sure about what they wanna do. And then they realize there are people that are willing to give them that chance and willing to be empathetic and this switch flips for them. And, and that's what can lead to this transformation in really important ways. Um, so trying to maintain that, that connection from outside to inside. Um, and then in the post-release space, um, you know, like everybody, we're using a lot of Zoom and trying to create programming that we can do uh, uh, remotely. So we're now delivering um, programming online workshops and we're putting together a book club actually where we're going to have both volunteers and our, our EITs get together and be part of a book club and talk about a book every week um, and having kind of community, um, you know, community nights uh, where, you know, people will get on a Zoom and they're able to really kind of just talk about what's going on. Um, and then we'll see how that evolves, but but really trying to find ways to build community and, and personal connection, even in a time when we can't physically be connected. Yeah, talking about building community, um, the uh, we did a story about you in the most recent issue of Pomona College Magazine, and it ends with uh, a description of a trust-building exercise that you do that I found really moving. Yeah. Um, I, can you tell us about that? Yeah, so there's one of the one of the exercises we do with our EITs and with volunteers at our, our volunteer days is something called Step to the Line, and um, we certainly didn't invent it. But um, but uh, you know the way it works is you have volunteers lined up on one line, and we have our EITs lined up on another line directly across from them, so facing each other, and uh, we ask a series of or we say a series of statements, and if they're true, people step forward to this line and if they're not true, they step away. And um, you know, it, it becomes this silent organic sharing exercise that is really um, a, a way for people to learn about each other and learn really about what they have in common in a place where people feel like they may walk in there feeling like they don't have a lot in common. Yeah. Uh, but over the course of this exercise, it's just, it, it is this very revealing kind of raw um, experience where people connect without saying a word um, about common past, common uh, and common experiences, and, and are able to really practice empathy. Um, 
And, you know, the amazing thing about it is that um, there are so many people in this world who believe that their experiences, um, well, that, that maybe the problem they've had in their life is unique, mm-hmm. right? That they're the only ones who could possibly have had this issue. And then they get in this room and they realize, they look around on some of these statements that are read and they realize, oh, you know what? I'm not the only one who struggles with addiction, right? I'm not the only one who, um, you know, had, uh, you know, violence in my family, right? Things that we as a society push down and hide and you bring them out there and people realize sometimes for the first time in their life that they're not the only ones who have had that experience. And that's life changing. you know, I spoke to a woman at the women's prison, um, in, in, in Corona, not too far from Claremont. Um, she had been in prison in and out since she was seven. And, um, uh, you know, she was on her fifth or sixth, you know, bid in prison, mid fifties, incarcerated with her daughter. Um, and they were both in our class. And she said to me, you know, Andrew, when I did this program, it was the first time in my life I realized that these I was not the only one to have these problems. I was not the only one to have had these experiences and that I wasn't alone. And that's that's amazing coming from a a woman who's in her 50s, right? And I think for her, that was life-changing because all of a sudden she felt that she could, you know, that that she could make a human connection. And some of her, her, you know, fellow EITs were like, yeah, she's really really changed. Right. And I think that that human connection, like that, that's not a incarcerated person thing, right. That's not a, a, you know, a damaged person thing. Like that's an everybody person thing, right. You know, mm-hmm. those human connections are, are what makes us human and um, are what um, makes us realize that, you know, we're not alone and that uh, there are people that support us and that, you know, we, we have something to offer the world. Um, and that, you know, for somebody who lives their life believing they've got nothing that no one cares, that no one understands them, and to move to this place of I made a human connection, someone understood me. It's life changing. Yeah. Andrew, to end up, um, if if some of our listeners would like to get involved in this kind of work, yeah, what can they do, or what are some recommendations that you have for them? Yeah, I, if you're in. Um, uh, a place where we run our programming, which you know you can check our website www.defyventures.org. Um, you know you can uh, you can look on there and see where we're running programming. And if you are in an area, Northern California, Southern California, uh, Colorado, uh, Illinois, uh, Greater Chicago area, uh, New York, Connecticut, uh, Washington State, um, if you're in one of those spots and you want to join for one of our trips, you can sign up there. Just take a look at what we're running. Right now, we're not running anything, obviously, because we're you know, uh, waiting for the prisons to reopen. Um, I, you know, if, um, there are opportunities to get involved in some of our post-release work right now. Um, you know, if folks want to join one of our, our, you know, online book clubs. Uh, you can check our, our site there. Signups are listed there. Um, uh, sign up for the mailing list. So you can see what we're doing and we'd love to have you join, um, and come inside and it will change your life. Uh, if you do, um, you know, certainly we are also, um, we're looking for people to be volunteers and we're looking for people who, who want to support the work. And, um, uh, you know, it's a weird time to be asking for money right now from anybody who isn't 
or for anything that isn't directly related to a to a virus. But um, but you know th these are vulnerable populations that we're serving, um, and uh, they are people who are are very at risk, um, not only from getting sick, but just you know from from what's happening with the economy and um, and where we go from here. And uh, if you're an employer, uh, you know, we, we're trying to build a, a movement of second chance or fair chance employers. People are willing to give folks a shot, um, you know, get in touch. We, we would love to know who you are and be able to refer people for employment. Um, and, uh, you know, but, but I, I think this is, this is an important social justice movement. Um, it's an important thing for people to get involved with. And I, I hope people will check it out. And even if all people do is, you know, find an opportunity to come to prison with us and see what that's like, right? It'll change your mind. It'll change your mindset. It'll change your life. It also just gives you a window into how your tax dollars are being spent. And, and what, is this, what is this criminal justice system that we all like to pretend doesn't exist? So on that note, we're going to wrap this up. Fantastic. Um, we've been, we're... Uh, we've been talking to Andrew Glazier, class of 1997, the president and CEO of Defy Ventures. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Andrew. And to all who stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast at Pomona College. Stay safe, and until next time. <laughs>